Hard to believe that this is the end of the academic year, or the, of semester, I should say. Uh, and uh, for the other programs that continue on, uh, this is kind of a bit of a lull. I love this season of Christmas. I want to take a poll because we uh, were arguing in my office about when the Christmas decorations should go up uh, in my office. How many of you would have your Christmas trees up now? Uh, How many of you don't? Okay, I lose. All right. Just ignore that. (laughs) If you have your uh, Bibles or you have a phone or you have an iPad... Uh, open up to Luke chapter 2. I've told a, a story many times of, uh, of an encounter I had with a New Testament scholar named George Ladd. And so for you that have heard that story, you can be thankful I'm not going to tell it again. Um, but it was in a time in which I was trying to impress uh, a professor And I wanted to ask a question. And in his textbook, Theology of the New Testament, George Ladd had written this little, uh, it's kind of, you can miss it almost. But it's this idea that, that God, it appeared from the Old Testament to the New Testament, had become silent Uh, Lad said, for centuries, the living voice of prophecy, it seemed, had been stilled. No longer, it seemed, did God speak through human voice. There was this time of silence. And I wanted to ask Dr. Lad why, and I'll tell you that story another time. He said he wasn't God, he didn't know. I've come to realize that the silence was actually something particularly critical to the coming of Jesus. I don't know if the story of Christmas to you has lost its mystery, it's lost its power, it's so familiar. And sometimes silence and anticipation, which is what we're entering into now with Advent, these four Sundays where we wait and anticipate this silence, Uh, Most of you as students probably don't remember the time that there was not internet. Am I right? You're all nodding your heads. Well, I'm old enough to remember that time where there was no phones that would text. A matter of fact, I had one of the first bag phones, cell phones. Uh, It's quite funny when you look at it now. And Carla and I were starting our relationship. And I was in uh, California and then Toronto, and she was in Regina, Saskatchewan. And I longed for a phone call or a letter. Do you know letters? (laughs) Just to get a letter. Like I would rush home to the mailbox just to see if there was a letter from her. It was this incredible anticipation during the day. And then you'd run home and if it wasn't there, there was great disappointment. 
if it was there, I would rip the envelope open and I would read it immediately. Or late at night, this was before uh, long distance was cheaper, you would wait for a phone call or you would make a phone call. The worst times was when I made a phone call late at night and she wasn't home. Because then I thought, there was this guy that drove a Porsche that was trying to get close to her. Uh, and, he had, and, and he wore really expensive clothes and a really nice ties. And, and if, if she wasn't home at night so I could talk to her, I would just ache inside. I remember a particular time when neither a letter or a phone call connected for over four days. I couldn't. I mean, I just ached inside. And then the phone call came. If you can understand my pain in that, you might understand this story of Simeon as we approach Christmas. Here is a person who has been promised for years that he would not die until the Son of God, the Messiah, was placed in his arms and he would see him. Here is a person who has waited and noticed the silence in all of the things. And then suddenly this couple walks in with this baby, hands this baby to do the right that he had done thousands and thousands of times. And they place this baby in his arms. This person who has been waiting and anticipating for so long. And he knows there's something about this baby. This baby, bam, shatters the silence for him. Like the shattering of a window in the middle of your sleep at night, this story changes. The silence is no longer an issue. All of a sudden, everything is new. All of the anticipation comes to life in this baby. Bruce Coburn puts it this way. Like a stone in the surface of a still river, driving the ripples on forever, redemption, listen to the word he uses, rips through the surface of time with the cry of a tiny babe. This baby, this birth, this moment, this incredible potential, if you see its mystery and you understand the silence, then maybe you will gather and grasp the shattering of that silence as God speaks in his son, in a baby. Simeon explains it if you look in that passage in 20, verse 25, chapter 2. We don't know much about him, but we know what he's been promised. And so here he is, all of a sudden, he says, this baby will be a contrast to everything else that is going on around. This isn't just any baby. All of a sudden, he sees life as it could be in this baby. He sees love as it could be. 
And then it's glaringly stark as he sees life as it really is and love as it really is. And so in a moment of just pure praise, unbridled ecstasy, he cries out, this Jesus will be different. This baby, he says, will be a revealing light and a sign (coughs) spoken against those that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. No matter how familiar the story is, as much as you would like to make the birth trivial and small, Simeon cries out in this passage, I don't think so. This birth stands as a glaring mystery, a happening that causes us to see ourselves in the ways we don't like to see ourselves. It, it reveals our need. It reveals our self-indulgence. It reveals our loneliness. It reveals our anger and our hurt. It reveals the fact that we don't wish good will on anyone before it comes to us first. It shows us for who we really are. This birth that we are anticipating, celebrating in a few weeks interrupts us just for a moment. It interrupts all of our illusions and it paints a picture of reality. One of my favorite writers around Christmas is G.K. Chesterton. And he says this, I love how he uses this phrase. I do not minimize the scale of the miracle as some of our milder theologians have done. Instead, he says, I've deliberately dwelt, now listen to what he says about the birth, on the incredible interruption. Isn't that a great line? The incredible interruption. Later on, he'll talk about Jesus as being the enormous exception. He says, I've deliberately dwelt on the incredible interruption. Jesus, as a blow that broke the backbone of history, a miracle that could have shook the world, but instead came to steady the world. Simeon calls it a revealing light that shows things as they really are because it's only as things are revealed and that they're named that things can be changed. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but God's love is both salty and joyous. It reveals things for what they are, but then it clothes you in grace and love and forgiveness. Zacchaeus, I see you in that tree. And all of a sudden, Zacchaeus is naked before everybody, all that he is. And then Jesus says, come down from that tree. I'm going to your house and we're going to eat. But what does it reveal? Luke unpacks the rest. of. Basically, this is Luke's way of, of telling you, you better read the rest of the story. Because Luke begins to unpack this. He looks at Luke 4 and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind. To release the oppressed. To proclaim the year 
of the Lord's favor. Read on and see over and over how the self-righteous religious establishment missed the good news and how the hidden narratives of these parables that Jesus uses speaks life to the marginalized and the lost while to the rest of us it just makes us mad or at least confused. My friend has written a book on the parables and he loves to say that Jesus chose these parables as hidden narratives that those who really anticipated and wanted to hear would hear and those who didn't would not. We've come to this time in our history where we don't like to call anything sin and evil unless it's a terrorist. But this birth reveals things for what they are. It's our brokenness. It's our sin. And it's our evil. But it reveals and it also serves as a signpost, Simeon says, for just a moment. And we see it just for a moment in the few, mo- these few weeks of December when all of a sudden this birth interrupts us for just a moment in our illusion and we tend to get a little nicer to each other, right? Law firms collect money for the poor. Businesses put out boxes for food banks. Churches have dinners and hampers for those less fortunate. Warfares cease for a day. They declare a Christmas truce. For a while, it feels like the city becomes just a bit more hopeful and a caring place. For just a while, it seems that we pause and we get nice. But that's not enough. Simeon makes a point in verse 35. He says, Jesus' birth will be a sign. It will show us the way. And he means it for all time. We have managed to minimize it down to a few weeks. But that's okay because the person of Jesus, the birth, the whole story is inescapable even for a year. And you are the people of Christmas 365 days of the year. It captured you in your own faith, in your business as usual lives. And now it captures you and it makes you a dangerous person in this world. Because you choose to live as a people of Christmas through the year. You are the people that understand you are called to live more responsibly, more sacredly. 52 weeks of the year, not just for a moment, but for a lifetime. Coburn captures it again in one of his songs. He says this, there are those who know about his miracle birth. The humblest of people catch a glimpse of their worth. For it isn't to the palace that the Christ child comes but to shepherds and street people, hookers 
and bums. And the message is clear if you've got ears to hear that forgiveness is given for your guilt and your fear. It's a Christmas gift you don't have to buy. There's a future shine in a baby's eye. You are the birth. You are the Jesus. 365 days of the year. We're entering this time of anticipation. And I've often wondered uh, if we could live like that in this deep belief that God is always at work and that our job is to anticipate and to see what he's doing and join him in all of those possibilities. Uh, one time I was, uh, when I was the associate pastor in a church, just coming back from, just coming out from seminary, um, I may have even told this story one time, but uh, I didn't get to preach a lot in the morning service when all the people were there. And, I, and it kind of, I mean, I just graduated. I knew everything. You know, I, I had it all bagged. I mean, that, nothing's worse than a little knowledge, right? Especially when you think it's all knowledge. And uh, I, I just wanted a chance to be set loose to the whole congregation. And so one day the pastor, senior pastor came to me, a good friend, and he said, uh, why don't you preach the day of Pentecost? And I went, yes. <laughs> like, this is my... Like, Holy Spirit, I'm charismatic. This is good. The church, I'm a Baptist. I have a high view of the church. The mission of the church. This, this was great. The birth of the church. And so I had four weeks. I had four weeks to prepare a sermon. I've never had four weeks to prepare a sermon ever since. But I had four weeks. And I went back to my office and I crafted an hour and a half long sermon that was a gem of a sermon. I started in the Old Testament with that great Hebrew word, ruach, right? For all you Hebrew scholars, ruach, breath, say it with me, ruach. Isn't that a great word? Ruach. I talked about good breath, bad breath. I, I talked, I mean, anything I could do, I told stories like I always do, which lengthens the sermon even more. I got into the New Testament. I talked about how Jesus said, I'm going away, and, uh, some, but something better is going to happen. And I'm, then I talked about the fact that I didn't think they actually believed that, you know, that they actually probably thought, you're not going. We're not letting you go. And then I got to the birth of the church. This was in an old downtown first church. Big stained glass windows. Big sat, I don't know how many it sat. Probably a thousand or something. And I got into describing the birth of the church. And I said, and there was tongues of fire. 
And then I said, and then there was a great rushing wind. And then, bam, a window blew out in the church. Uh, I'm not lying. I'm not, this is not a Tony Campolo story that I'm stretching. This actually happened. Like, like right after I said there was, it was the greatest object lesson that ever, and the timing was impeccable. And if I really thought I was that deeply spiritual, I would have thought that God had done that just for me so that I would get to preach more in the morning service. <laughs> but bam! The window blew up. Turned out something, a, a little tornado would kind of touch down and suck the window out. The weathermen in our church explained it to me afterwards. This is what I remember about that moment. That moment when the windows blew out. It was the look on everybody's face. Because just for a moment, they were like this. Wondering. Is God going to meet? Is God, is this going to happen? I wonder. If this is a Simeon moment for most of us. I mean, what would have happened? I sometimes do this. I think about... Well, what would have happened if, what would have happened if Simeon was given this baby and he had just gotten so bored of waiting, right? That he just kind of went, ho-hum, let's do the circumcision. It's going to hurt you, not me. You know, what, what, what would have happened if, if he had not been anticipating, wondering, Standing on tiptoes, believing in a God that actually works and acts. Do you hear that? A God who actually works and acts in this world. How many moments do you miss? Even the littlest things where God does something and you miss them because you're so busy in your silence that you've lost any ability to anticipate and you miss these moments that are so critical. In this Advent, two things. You're Simeon, waiting, wondering, when's it gonna happen? How's it gonna happen? What's he gonna do? How's he gonna surprise me? Isn't that one of the wonderful things about God? He just doesn't work in your little box. Sometimes he works in other people's boxes. And we join. You're Simeon. You're also those people who've been called to live as followers of Jesus, not just in these four weeks, but as anticipators of 365 days of a God who is at work and will change lives. 
you are coming to the table, this table. This table which represents so much for us. Come on up. This table, I don't know what your tradition is. That's the wonderful thing about a transdenominational school. Uh, Each of us approach the table in different ways and and approach it in ways that, uh, that are important to our tradition. In my tradition, we say this is just a memory. It's a remembrance. Um, I tend to have gone away from my tradition on that. I actually think uh, that the grace of God is present, that God is at work at the table. And that memory is important, but a God who acts is incredibly important. And so when I come to this table, as you come today... Uh, You come not because you have it all together, but you come because you're the people that are honest. You come as people who know that you are in need. You're in need of grace. Uh, You're in need of forgiveness. You're in need of empowerment to live. You're in need of wisdom to navigate your faith in a strange world? At this table, God's grace and forgiveness is present. And when you partake of the elements, you should expect that God touches you here. So come to this table. Not because you've got it all together, but because you are the honest ones who know you don't. Come to the table with your brokenness, but come with your potential and your possibilities that God has placed in your life, that he is nurturing in you here. Come as a people who are followers of Christ, who want to live dangerously, in this world. There'll be four stations. We invite you to come up the center aisle and partake and then go down on the sides. We'll do it by intinction. So you'll take the bread and you'll dip it in the cup. And uh, there is gluten-free on the left. Uh, the last station will, will be gluten-free for those that that's a necessity. Jesus took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in memory of me. He took the cup and he said, this is my blood shed for you, the sign of a new covenant that I will have with my people. When I was a pastor, I would always come to this cup and I would say, this is the party part of communion, of the Eucharist. This is about grace and forgiveness that allows you to stumble toward heaven, but stumble toward heaven. Because you are the people who have experienced grace and forgiveness. So come 
to the table.